0: Welcome to Wattcast, I'm Charlene Gianetti, editor of Woman Around Town. Since 1984, Coretta Hubbard and Lynn Revo Cohen have built a strong reputation for delivering extremely effective prevention training that focuses on high-risk issues in the workplace, including sexual harassment and sexual assault. The current cultural climate means their phones never stop ringing. For the past four months, we've been fortunate to have their expertise shared on our site in a series called Toxic Culture. Also contributing to the series are Chris Kilmartin, Emeritus Professor of Psychology from the University of Mary Washington, and Gwen Kreider, a diversity and inclusion strategist with over 20 years of leadership experience in nonprofit and private sector organizations. If you haven't had a chance to read this extremely important series, please go to the website to catch up. Coretta and Lynn have taken time from their very busy schedules to talk with us about a topic that continues to dominate the news. Coretta and Lynn, thank you so much for being here today. So let's start with uh, a big question here. Take us back 30 years. When you began doing these uh, uh, training Uh, meetings before uh, corporations. So you're before corporate executives presenting a program on sexual harassment. Can you remember the reaction back then?
1: That's a great question, Um, and the answer is a little more complex um, in, uh, in terms of 30 years ago or even 20 years ago. When we would be called in in that period of time, the corporate executive was not in the room. Um, it would be very rare uh, to see a CEO in a training uh, that we would do on sexual harassment prevention. Wow. In those days, it was more, um, it was certainly, we would be hired by the HR people, uh, and the CEO would know that we were there, uh, but it would be very rare for them to actually be in attendance. Uh, it was more of a check the box kind of training uh, like any other uh, compliance training that they would do, um, And so nowadays, that has changed dramatically. It is very rare for the CEO not to be involved uh, and not to be present.
0: and and about about when did that happen? I mean, because you're going back thirty years, when did the CEOs start showing up to these meetings?
2: the The signature event was Anita Hill. Before Anita Hill, this was under the umbrella of diversity or pay equity, and it was, as Lynn said, shuffled under the compliance umbrella. Once Anita Hill hearings took place, and she was so articulate and so legitimate, then companies and federal agencies sat up and took notice, and that made a huge difference, and that's when the CEOs started to think I need to pay attention to what is happening in my own company. But but I don't think. Go ahead, Linda. There
1: there would be a difference too between those that were in trouble and those that weren't. Um, Very often, we get called in uh, to use a tired phrase after the horse has left the barn, Mm. and and, uh, they've already had trouble. And I'll give you a couple of examples for that. Um, The tail hook. You recall uh, the incident that the Navy suffered through in the early 90s. Uh, Mitsubishi, uh, same time period, uh, the largest ever class action lawsuit um, on sexual harassment, uh, 35 million dollar settlement. Problems that. some companies like Merrill Lynch, other financial services companies, auto companies, Ford, uh, uh, Ford Motor Company in particular, those organizations that were in the press and having embarrassing problems that they were being held accountable for, in those cases we would see senior executives in training. Um, uh, and very much the same now, uh, although this, uh, we will get to this in a little bit, but um, the difference even 20 years ago um, is that we would get a lot more CEO-level attention for companies that um, had uh, crossed over that threshold of already being in the public view as having a problem. And that's where you get the C-level attention and the C-level presence. So
0: it wasn't as proactive, it was reactive?
1: Reactive. Very much reactive. Um, And it's very different now. And you asked, uh, Coretta mentioned the signature event of the Nita Hill, and you'll probably get to this, but of course the Me Too uh, movement has created a different mentality in psychology
2: totally now. Mm -hmm. And response Mm -hmm. to this particular issue.
0: So what were the, what are some of the behaviors that were acceptable back then that, you know, totally would not be acceptable right now?
1: Well, it, uh, in, in prior times, it was quite normal um, for uh, women to experience sexist behavior on a regular basis, um, being um, subject to demeaning comments, to being relegated to uh, administrative tasks uh, where their peer level males in the same company wouldn't be asked to do, you know, set up the meeting, uh, greet the visitor, arrange the room, that kind of thing. Uh, They would very much be subject to what we would now consider not okay, sexist jokes, comments, references um, to clothing, you know, how hot somebody is uh, or not hot somebody is. Um, If there were examples that were brought up about sexual harassment uh, in the past, uh, there would be a lot of victim blaming. Uh, Look what she wears, look how she acts. Um, People would have no qualms about blaming victims when issues like this would come up. And that's changed. Uh, That behavior is no longer okay.
0: Okay that that's that's all very positive then.
1: We think it's very positive positive. Um, and it, it's changed in that it's in another big way it's not just to stay out of trouble you don't do that kind of thing there's a growing awareness among um, men and women that um, it's not it's not just compliance we're not just trying to not get sued but we're really aiming for what we call aspirational goals for a corporation. Mm -hmm. We want to aspire to be a respectful workplace Mm -hmm. and we want to change the culture to be one where everybody, men, women, and people of color, as well as uh, Caucasian, Mm -hmm. like they're valued. And much of that uh, revolves around how people speak to each other, how people speak about each other, and how they behave at work.
0: So um, has it helped that uh, women are moving into supervisory positions and are able to uh, affect some of this change? Absolutely, absolutely. The
1: presence of women at senior levels uh, where they are the ones accountable. Um, And they certainly have risen through the ranks and know what it feels like uh, to be subject to that kind of behavior. So they're very much aware Uh, their responsibility to call out behavior that's inappropriate and to hold other people accountable and to require people to step in and help a colleague Mm -hmm. as well as uh, teach people how to stand up for themselves.
2: It still affects the bottom line. That's where this all began that diversity made sense because they knew that a diverse workforce, they could attract more people that were talented and then they could keep them. Because when we first started in the 80s, there was a revolving door. Most uh, women and people of color would last three to five years at most. And they would go off and do other things, start their own businesses, or move to companies that literally mirrored who they were. So today, it is still about the bottom line. It's still about attracting talent. And now the added uh, overlay, which we think is really positive, is a respectful workplace. Hmm. Because if you don't have respect for one another, then you're going to have the revolving door again. And of course, it costs a lot of money to keep replacing people in a particular company or climate. Right. I wonder, how does it affect promoting
0: people? I mean, are there now questions about this when they're about to promote? I I mean, you know, watching how the networks have promoted people to take the place of Charlie Rose and Matt Lauer and some of these other people, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, you know, do they vet them and say to them, you know, is there anything (laughs) that could come up? You know, we don't want to put you in this position and have another crisis on our hands, but I mean, even on the corporate level, is that becoming um, fair game for uh, the people who are, uh, you know, doing these, well, making yeah. these decisions? Well, you can't,
1: you can't just go uh, carelessly asking people questions. Uh, you have to be careful in your interviews, as always. Mm-hmm. Um, here's what has really changed. In the past, um, if uh, a CEO was going to approach, uh, going to promote uh, a top gun, to use his phrase, um, who's a top performer um, that could generate a lot of revenues. And there were rumors, perhaps, uh, he, you know, the hiring official had heard some stuff, but, you know, wasn't really sure about it, um, and promoted that person anyway, uh, because they didn't feel like the risk um, uh, uh, was going to create any problem for them. At this point, a hiring official, a CEO, anybody making those decisions uh, would certainly have uh, concerns about rumors that they have heard and they would probably use their internal resources um, to quietly uh, find out if these rumors are true, perhaps do an investigation of some sort, mm-hmm. if, there's been compl- if there is any complaints that have been filed. Um, right now, they are required uh, to do an investigation. So there's a lot more care, uh, and rightly so. Uh, no CEO wants to be tomorrow's headline mm-hmm. in the New York Times or the Washington Post. You know, we 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 know that this is every CEO's two a.m. nightmare. <laughs> um, right, you know have- what what have I not paid attention to? Am I the next? Uh, am I the next headline? Um, yeah. And and so there's uh, an enhanced sensitivity around um, making sure that people that are put in uh, positions of power don't, uh, aren't people that will abuse that power.
0: Mm-hmm. So, uh, Lynn and Coretta, are you surprised by the Me Too movement about how this whole thing evolved and, and what it's done so far?
1: I don't think we're surprised as much as... Um, uh, sort of heartened by it. Thrilled. Um, the fact that this happened at such a high level, uh, you know, beginning with Harvey Weinstein and all the women in Hollywood that have told their stories, certainly helped um, catch fire uh, to the Me Too movement uh, in a way that empowered women who are not famous all over the country uh, through the use of social media to uh, join this bandwagon and, and uh, create a national impact. So um, it's, it's a very, very empowering movement uh, for women, because it's not just about the famous women. It's about women in every environment, whether it's food service, medical, hospital services, fire stations, police departments. It is empowering women in every sector uh, in a very positive way.
0: In some way, the Me Too movement has been a little bit controversial. I mean, there have been some abed pieces uh, by women who feel that some jumping onto this movement, you know, maybe they've just been whistled at walking by a construction site. And, you know, how can they put themselves on the same level of a woman who's been raped? Um, but does that harm the movement? Do you think? I mean, it is there's still power in numbers, and everyone should have their say? Everyone should have their say, and
1: you know, you always expect a reaction. For every action, there's a reaction. It's certainly true in issues like uh, women and women's employment issues. Um, there's always a reaction, so it's predictable. Um, it's disappointing um, to read uh, articles written by women who, um, in in essence, do a little bit of victim blaming. Mm -hmm. Um, And the Me Too movement is not in any way to draw a parallel between uh, a catcall and a rape. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it is uh, a way to say, you know, uh, all uh, sexual
2: harassment and sexual assault is
1: inappropriate. And we all have the right... Um, to be treated respectfully. It, um, it, obviously, there are differences in degree, but that doesn't mitigate at all the kind of harassment that many people feel um, in sexual harassment situations that, are, that don't rise to the level of sexual assault. Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, uh, there was an op-ed piece in the Times recently uh, defending Woody Allen, for instance, uh, because, you know, they felt that there, you know, his daughter was only one person who came out uh, to speak against him, and there was really no proof. Uh, how do we process that when, you know, when there isn't, I mean, with some of these offenders, there are many that come forward. Does uh, it doesn't matter if it's just one person coming forward or many people coming forward? I mean, uh, when we hear about these things, how do we process them?
2: Well, it should
1: matter if it's egregious. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one, one incident of sexual assault is egregious.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, and um, if you look at the data, it's
1: very compelling. We do a lot of training for the military. We just did the training uh, for first responders on sexual assault, uh, how to respond if you're uh, getting a call um from a woman on a uh, a, a rape uh, charge and um, the reason we were called in is that first responders often find um, the callers less than reliable um, because oftentimes their stories um, will change. They've been traumatized, they can't remember things. Mm -hmm. Um, Sometimes they give different facts in different points of the call and they're very emotional during the call. And we had the head of a sex crimes unit um, deliver this training and she said, you need to start by believing. And she said, and the reason is this, 95.5% of the calls that come in on sexual assault are proven to be true by all the research that the sex crimes units have collected nationwide. Mm -hmm. So you need to start by believing. And uh, she then went on to talk about um, the um, psychological and physiological response to trauma and what it does to not only rape victims, but even to police officers who are threatened. This is uh, by really very important victims. point. And so um, she made a very convincing case um, that um, you know you can expect um, a, a call on sexual assault to be a difficult one,
2: uh, but you start by believing. Did you want to add to that credit? The, what the research has shown that in a situation where the police are involved and a victim is involved. The police see the situation completely different in the same split second as the victim does. And they can be two entirely different scenarios that have been created in in each mind, just given the trauma that is taking place at the moment and the fear level that rises that affects your whole brain. Mm -hmm. So we know that um, this kind of trauma, even if it's just happened to somebody, sometimes it takes years and years and years for the victim to process it. So to think that we shouldn't believe them when it has occurred, we need every voice to be heard, and we need to respect it, and we need to believe it.
0: Since there are more women in supervisory positions. Are you seeing any women who are being accused of sexual harassment? Does that ever come up?
1: It does come up. uh, And I'll give you an interesting statistic. In the military, uh, the majority of victims are actually men. And uh, the majority of that, that's because 80% of the people are men. Right. right. Uh, But it's a stunning statistic nonetheless. Um, Much of that is male on male. Mm. Uh, but there are cases where women um, um, uh, harass men. It mm-hmm. certainly happens. But the vast majority of cases of um, harassment and um, sexual assault is, is male on female. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's not to say that women uh, never do it because uh, there are instances where women uh, harass men and women harass other women. Right, right. But it is not the norm. Uh, we don't want to create the impression that that is the norm.
0: So, I've spoken to some young men uh, who are single and uh, are interested in dating, and some of them are really worried about dating and about social (laughs) situations uh, because, uh, you know, with all of this going on, they want to make sure that they're doing the right things and not misinterpreting signals and all of that. So what advice do you give to these young men who are out there?
1: It's, it's a, tricky, um, a tricky issue for men. Men, you know, we hear from men all the time now. Um, they are nervous about what to say, how to say it. Um, and, it, you know, there's a responsibility now for men to just really think about this. Um, and some easy tips for men uh, is, you know, if, if my behavior was observable, um, to everybody around me, uh, would I be okay with it? Um, if I um, am attracted to someone at work and I ask them uh, to go out with me and they say no, um, the most appropriate thing uh, is to take no as no and move on and just stay friends with that person. Um, it is not a good idea to ask over and over and over again if the person says no. Mm. Um, And so take, you know, what we're asking men is to take their cues
2: from the women around them. Mm -hmm. And And, just uh, ask, just ask them, do you mind? Is this all right? Just be as direct as you can. And the women need to be direct back. No, it's not. I prefer to be your friend.
0: You know, I loved your last story about these eraser phrases. Phrases. (laughs) Uh, because I think that, you know, that's the way people sometimes feel, that if they preface or follow up a offensive comment with something like that, it lets them off the hook. Uh, does that surprise people when you present that in training?
1: They love it.
2: <laughs> okay. They
1: love it because they've all heard it. You know, mm-hmm. uh, the classic ones, I'm not a racist, but... Um, I'm not a sexist, but I'd never blame a victim. But um, and it's sort of the excuse that you hear, where you know what's coming next. Right. You know, with all do, <laughs> with all due respect, you know, disrespect is coming. Right, right.
0: <laughs> yeah, and um, it, it could apply to many topics, not just the topic of sexual harassment. I mean, oh,
1: absolutely,
0: across the board. There,
1: there are so many other isms. You know, if you have one, you probably have multiple right. in, a, in an organization. If you have sexism, um, you probably have issues around, you know, race and ethnicity and age and you name it. Right. Um, and there's a point that I wanted to make earlier about the, um, the, the role of the leader, because we talked at the beginning of the call about the role of the leader. One of the things that we do a lot now with our uh, large organizations and small ones too is meet directly with the leadership because they need to be the ones to set the tone for all of this behavior and eraser phrases is one of them Um, if they have a toxic culture or they're worried about having a toxic culture it's up to them to be sure that they change that culture and there is data in the military which is very profound. In a in a command where the commanding officer doesn't quote sweat the small stuff, the little jokes, the comments, the sexist stuff. A woman in that command has a six hundred percent increased chance of being a victim of sexual assault. Mm. It's wow. an amazing statistic. Yeah, I'll say. And so, where we begin with leadership is something called crucial conversations. You know, how do you, as a leader, set the tone every day in everything that you do that people are to be respected? Mm. Um, how do you sweat the small stuff? How do you, there's a phrase that our expert, Dr. Chris Martin uses, and it's how do you amplify the healthy voices in the room? Right. And how do you demand what we call upstander behavior? It used to be called bystander behavior. Mm-hmm. You require people at every level of management and every level of peer relationships to step up for the person next to them. Mm-hmm. You hear something inappropriate, it's not okay to laugh at it. If you think it's inappropriate, so do the majority of people in the room. It's your job to step up and stop it.
0: So we use this uh, phrase a lot, the tipping point. Have we reached a tipping point
2: on these issues, do you think? Well, I hope think- not. I hope not. So, I, I think we have in a way correct. You do? Okay, good. Let's have the conversation. Do.
1: I I feel there's a definite shift in the energy around this issue in a corporation uh, or in any employment situation. Um, if this hadn't happened, we wouldn't be flooded as we are today with calls to come in as soon as you can to present to our organization on this issue. And that's why I say we're at a tipping point because the, because of in large part social media and the Me Too campaign, there is an everyday presence. In the minds of the leadership of organizations, that they are accountable now and they need to do something to respond. And so, at least in my mind, that's a tipping point. And we're noticing a difference in the calls that we get. Mm. People want help. They are, you know, they're not taking six months to put out an RFP, they're calling us. Um, You know, we need some help and we need some help right away. How soon can you come in? And to me, that's a tipping point. This is no longer, um, you know, a check-the-box kind of gotta-do thing. Um, This is top of mind.
2: I well, I completely agree with you. I think I'm just uh, reinterpreting the word, uh, the words tipping point. Tipping point to me means now there's a downside. And I don't see this as a downside. I still see this as an amplification and a permission for people who have been in some way disrespected or abused uh, to speak up, to continue to speak up, and for organizations, like Lynn just said, to keep calling us to come in to help uh, do the cultural shift that we uh, pride ourselves on. So what needs to
0: happen next? What do you... Hope for
2: that it. Well, this, go ahead.
1: <laughs> no, that uh, that the, the people that have been part of this movement, uh, women all over the world, actually, um, and their male colleagues who really care about this need to keep the pressure up. Um, this isn't something that we just let fade away and go back to the way it was, and it's going to be up to us. Uh, as advocates to keep the pressure on, to keep the attention on this issue and to stay close to the leadership of organizations on the importance of using this as an opportunity to really change the culture in a positive way. And we think we've got that attention right now at senior levels. And so what we need to do is hold on to that because it's creating an enormous shift in a very positive way.
2: And everyone now has the opportunity to have their voice heard. And that's really what is important about any change that's taking place. There are no more silent voices or squashed people. So everyone has the opportunity to come forward and be part of the change.
0: Okay, so thank you both, uh, Lynn and Coretta. Uh, their series uh, will continue on Woman Around Town so go to the site uh, the series is under the heading Toxic Culture and uh, we're about I don't know, 8 or 9 or 10 stories into this and you have so much more to say on the topic and I invite everybody to come in and you can email us there's an email address and all of the stories uh, you can uh uh, share your thoughts with us and, and Coretta and Lynn will share those in one of their stories. So again, I'm Charlene Gianetti, editor of Woman Around Town, and uh, thank you for listening.